I want to pray and ask for God's favor. Lord, I love you. Thank you so much for the people that are here. Um, the, the encouragement they give me, it's so deep. God, I ask for favor and grace from you right now. And thank you that truth brings life, grace and truth balance perfectly in your son, Jesus. Um, Lord, I love you. Need you desperately right now, please. In your name, amen. Okay. Uh, for me, my heart right now, I've been, I was praying and, and getting ready for today. And I thought, Lord, I want to encourage everybody. I want them to, to breathe in and go, wow, that's good. That's what I want to happen this morning, okay? Real quick flyover. Uh, when Paul writes 1 Corinthians, he is dealing with a church that is in, in many ways, in chaos, Okay. And if you read, if you watch and read chapter to chapter, you realize Paul's working through a laundry list. So there's this chick named Chloe, brilliant lady, natural leader. She has people that support her. She works with Paul. She's like a sub-apostolic kind of authority. And Chloe gets the report of just how jacked up it is at Corinth. And Chloe makes notes. Chloe takes the notes to Paul. Paul reads it. Paul gets very upset. What's going on? And Paul uses her outline essentially to write First Corinthians. All right. And chapter one. Hey, I love you guys. You're saints. It's me, Paul. You're wonderful. What's this I hear about factions and clubs and, and groups among you guys? What's going on? Someone's saying, hey, I'm a Paul. Paul's the guy. No, no, no. I'm a Peter. No, I'm I'm of Apollos. And then someone says, <clears throat> I'm of Christ. We're in the best group of all. And so we got this competing factionalism in the church. Chapter 2, it comes out that there's some people in the church who think they're big and fancy. Do you know why? Because they talk really well. If you're in Corinth and you've got a PhD, it's in rhetoric. It's how you talk. How persuasive you are. Can you string together words like pearls on a necklace and do it in such a compelling manner, uh, David White, that you win your argument? It's really the basis of, of good attorney work. Yeah, it's the art of rhetoric and persuasion. And then, and Paul just destroys that stuff, gets on to chapter three, and then boy, it, it's the dirty laundry list. And finds out that there's all kinds of immorality in the church. Uh, their, their lawsuits, frivolous lawsuits. You know, I paid $50 for the lawnmower and it won't start. And so I've got to hire an outside attorney to help me sue the guy who sold me the lawnmower uh, in the church. And so there's, uh, it's just a mess. The immorality, uh, getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. Can you imagine? Can you imagine this next Sunday? By the way, when do we have the service? Gosh, you guys are amazing. So can you imagine 11 o'clock next Sunday and, and because we're so abundant and full of grace at Christ Church, there's big uh, craters, they're called craters, big pitchers of wine, the real stuff, okay? And by 11.30, about 10 or 15 of you are so looped <laughs> that you'll say anything in church, you know? And things are getting out of hand, you know? That's what happened in Corinth. That's what was going on. Folks getting drunk in church during the Lord's Supper. Can you imagine? And he goes on and on and on. And, and he cleans up the mess. And by the time he gets to chapter 11, 
Paul is saying, look, the Lord's Supper is kind of, how, it's kind of where we rally. The Lord's Supper is the thing that literally the church gathers around. In fact, in the book of, the book of 1, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, taking the Lord's Supper, he says this, is that not why we meet? So one of the main reasons why the church is even motivated to do a service is to take the Lord's Supper. And by the way, that's got nothing to do with the Catholics, okay, or the Greek Orthodox. Let's kick that idea out. So, chapter uh, uh, 12, Paul teaches about spiritual gifting. Chapter 13, love, the centerpiece of love. And then 14, more stuff on gifts. And then 2 Corinthians, all right? I'm going to put these words up, and, and these words are designed to get you to think a little bit, all right? That's why they're up. So everybody, look with me at, at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. And look how Paul is trying to encourage this church. Now, for we know that our earthly tent, which is our house, is tore down. We have a building from God. Okay, what is an earthly tent? What do you think he means? He's using a metaphor. What is it? That? It's your body. Your flesh is like a tent. But, but it also is like a, like a building, something wood that you build. So it's kind of a double metaphor here. And by the way, it's, there's a triple metaphor. It's also like a garment. Your flesh is like a garment, and you can take this flesh off, and you can put a new garment on. So if our earthly tent is torn down, we die. We die. We have a building from God, a house not made by hands, eternal in the heavens. You think Paul listened to Jesus? What did Jesus say in John 14 about a house in heaven for us? What did he say? What's that? He's building many mansions. Yeah, he's building. Yeah. Or, by the way, uh, that may be a very Western reading. Uh, that it's a mansion, it's actually rooms. <laughs> you get a room, you know. But I wanted the big, like, 10,000 10, acre. You know, I know, I know, we're so Westerners. What did you say? Yeah, it's going to build. Yeah. Prepare a place for Prepare a place, right. And because where I am, I want you to be. Intimacy of relationship, isn't it beautiful? Um, and then verse 2, for indeed, in this tent, this body... We groan. We groan. Have you ever heard an old person get up out of a chair? Okay. All right. You get the idea. <laughs> yes. In this body, in this tent, we groan. Longing. Now we're shifting metaphors. Longing to be clothed with a dwelling from heaven. Since, in fact, after putting it on, we will not be found naked. Now, here's the deal about nakedness. You hear that and you go like, wow, it's automatically weirdness right out of the gate. Now hold on, there's a lot of Jewish thought in that one word. What's the first reference to nakedness in the Bible? Adam and Eve, okay. And is the nakedness a good thing or a bad thing? What, what is it, good thing? It's actually a very bad thing. Yes, yes, prior to. Oh, Patch, thank you, you just caught me, yes. Patches on it, uh, the, it's chapter 2, verse 25, and Adam and Eve were naked and not ashamed because there was no sin. Thank you. Thank you. Spot on. Spot on. Good for 
But in chapter 3, once sin hits, now what? Absolutely bad. Nakedness is something that is shameful, right? And because the shame is so intense, Adam and Eve hide in the shadows and, and make you know fig leaves and stuff like that, try to cover it up. Um, so Paul is grabbing that idea. We don't want to be found ashamed like we're naked. For indeed, we who are in this tent grown being burdened. Anybody here burdened with life? You don't have to answer, but I am. I groan. My, my, my heart, my mind, uh, my relationships, I, I groan. I'm burdened. Sometimes I feel like there's too much on the bar and I'm weak and, and I want to get the bar off my shoulders or, or get it on the rack. I'm, I'm, I'm tired. Because we do not want to be ashamed or unclothed, but to be clothed so that what is mortal my old tent, my old body, will be swallowed up by life. And by implication, it's eternal life. Now, he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a pledge. Okay? Right now, we have got to notice something that I believe is absolutely life-changing. Would you please notice in verse 4, uh, rather verse 5, he who prepared us for this thing, for this very purpose, is God. Okay. If you could lock on that, that idea that my tent, my body, the garment I'm currently wearing, in it, I'm going to groan. I'm going to hurt. I'm going to be burdened. Life's going to be hard. There's so much weight on the bar, I, I'm going to buckle. It's too much for me to handle. And Paul says, oh, uh, God's doing that on purpose, and we're prepared for that. He prepared us for this very thing. What do you do with that? If that's true, how do we perceive the groaning and the burdens that we bear? If Paul goes, hey, we're prepared for that, right? You understand that? Life is not supposed to be easy for a believer, by the way. It's supposed to be this way. If you could lock that down in your mind, how would it change us? What difference would it make if you believed God had a purpose in our suffering? How's that for kicking the door open? A purpose in our suffering? What difference would that make? Relief. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Wow, not alone. Yeah. That's so good, Serena. Somebody else. If there is a purpose for suffering intended by God who made the heavens and the earth. What do you think, Janice? One of the fruits of the Spirit is probably one we don't ever ask for, which is long suffering. <laughs> and I kind of think that, you know, it's Yeah, yeah. What is one of the most dangerous Christian uh, prayers a Christian prays? Dear Lord, please give me patience. That's, yeah. Why would you do that? Right? Why would you bring that on yourself? So, All right, you get it. All right, so just a real quick point of application. Do you guys feel like you're living out the purposes of God in your life? 
Great question. Are you living out God's purpose? If God is the creator of heaven and earth, and he is, and if God can name the stars, and if God knows when a sparrow falls and the number of hair in your head, if God knows you intimately, God has a purpose for you. Are you, are you in that? Are you walking out that purpose? Or are you doing your best to avoid that? Um, in Hebrew, that's actually amen is what that is. And, ah, that's what that is. So thank you, Archer. You the man. All right. Look at verse. Look at verse six. Therefore, and Paul goes like, therefore, as in, hope you guys get this next thing. Being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in this body, this tent we live in, we're absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. But we are of good courage and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Um, anybody here remember as a little kid uh, separation anxiety? Like having a meltdown if mommy left? Anybody remember that when you were a little kid? I did. True story. Uh, my sister Sue Ann, firstborn, I'm fourthborn. Uh, my mom promised that she was going to take me. I think uh, I'm like three or four years old. I'm a little guy. And my mom promised, hey, Chrissy, uh, let, me, let me get ready. We'll get in the car. We'll go down to Knight's Grocery, little grocery store that I love to go to. They had bubble gum, and, and we'll, we'll get some food for tonight. So I'm, I have you know, the attention span of a gnat at that age in my life. And so, I don't know, maybe 30 seconds went by as mom's getting ready. And I asked my sister, Sue Ann, where's mom? I'm supposed to be with mom. And Swam said, she's already left. Swam so didn't know. Mom was in the shower. And so I walk two, three miles near, by the way, a, a cliff-like place in the mountains where I live. Extremely dangerous. My dog, Laddie, went with me the whole time and kept me pushed to the side, the, the margin, so that I wouldn't get out in traffic. And my mom found out what had happened. She takes off in the car to find me. I didn't want to be separated from my mommy. If you want to see my grandkids have a meltdown, watch Rebecca leave the room. It's amazing. It's amazing, yeah. To be absent from the body, we want to be absent from the body because we want to be at home with the Lord. But we're not yet, so we're stuck here in this body, this tent, this aging body that we groan in and we are burdened by in life. Longing to be home. Anybody gets homesick, you get homesick. It's real. So, therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether we're at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. Yeah, isn't that beautiful? Uh, don't answer. Question, don't answer. Do you please God? The way you're living life, your attitudes, a judgmental spirit, you going ballistic because you can't control the universe. Do you think that pleases God? You know? Or what about a sense of brokenness and humility and a sense of grace? You think that pleases God? Absolutely. Absolutely does. Look at verse 10. This gets real serious real fast. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, 
so that each one of us may receive compensation for his deeds done through the body in accordance with what he has done, whether good or bad. Can you imagine going before the judgment seat of Christ and receiving compensation, payment, recompense for everything you've done? The good and the bad? Do you understand how serious this is going to be? This is a big deal, all right? And because of these core realities in Paul's life, he said, I'm going to set my life on a course. My ambition is to please him. And then Paul shifts gears. Not only is my ambition to please him, I have another ambition, verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade people. But we are well known to God. In other words, God knows everything. And I hope that we also are well known to your conscience. Have you ever been with someone and they have a clear conscience? What it's like to be with somebody, have a relationship with somebody with a clear conscience. And do you know what I'm talking about? What's it like? Give me some descriptors. Somebody with a clear conscience. What's it like? What is it like? What's that? The trust is, is, can come naturally, certainly, or more naturally. What else? They have a clear conscience, the two. Peace. Peace, I think there is peace, yeah. What else? Sleep well. yeah, you get a better night's sleep, certainly. Yeah. It's just beautiful to have relationships with people where there's a clear conscience between the two of you. What about the opposite? There's a guilty conscience. There's sensitivities and, and, there, and there's guilt and there's the reactions that come with that and little things can explode up into great big things because of guilt, real or perceived. It's a mess. They've got a guilty conscience. What's it like to try to relate to someone like that? Is it hard? Yeah. Paul says, I want to be, I'm well known by God. I want to be well known by you and I want you to know the importance of a clear conscience. We are not commending ourselves. We're not bragging. We're not leveraging, honor, shame, leveraging. We're not commending ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to be proud of us. He's saying, can you please, when you, when you see a spiritual man, can you at least lock onto it, okay? Know what is good in the eyes of God that stands right in front of you or right beside you. Know a godly woman when you see one. Know a godly man when you see one. Get in on the people that are making a bigger deal about the body and the clothing in heaven than, than the one on earth. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to be proud of us so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. Wow. Paul says, essentially saying this, look, you better lock down uh, who your leaders are, who the people that are the leaders at church, your, your church family. You better lock it down on what really matters. And if you do, you've got an answer for the people in the city of Corinth who are all about good looks and a corrupt heart. Does that sound like somebody you're familiar with? They're called Pharisees. You guys are like whitewashed tombs. You're beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. You're like a pitcher washed clean on the outside, but inside it's filthy. Same thing. You've got people that are consumed with appearance, 
and, and the artificial world of, of pictures and social media would be, it'd be an equivalent for us. And they don't have heart. And then Paul says this, for if we have lost our minds, it's for God. If you think this is insane on terms of the culture of Corinth, that's fine. This is for God. And if we are of sound mind, it's really for your benefit. It's for you. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that those who live would no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose on their behalf. Okay. Talk to me. Paul said, the love of Christ controls us. What is that about? What do you think? The love of Christ controlling us. What does that mean? What do you guys think? And Stephen, anybody online, let me know. If you are online, please engage. I need you to do that. What does it mean to be controlled by the love of Christ? So good, Margaret. Thank you. Someone else? What, uh, what does the love of Christ... That's going to be the controlling dynamic in your life. You know, what would that look like? Anybody else? Hey, David. I don't know if I'm, um, I don't know if I'm missing Mark, but wouldn't that be the love that Christ did for us, the sacrifice, but also giving us the Holy Spirit? Mm-hmm. Yes, and that's mentioned as a pledge. Absolutely. Anybody else? The love of Christ allows us to respond rather than to react. Ah. There you go. That is so good. Non-reactionary. So here's, here's the idea. When you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John, right, the four best friends you can ever have, you get to know those guys from beginning to end, and you are so familiar with those guys, you understand that it is a parading of Jesus interacting with this person. Next story, Jesus interacting with that person. Next story, Jesus interacting with that group, with this group. It's all patched about Jesus and the interacting of people. And the writers and the gospel kind of parade them by you as you read it so you can watch how they respond. You know? So the man who's a leper, by the way, do you touch lepers? No? Okay. Um, it sounds silly maybe, but do you want some, someone with like the first round COVID that was really bad? Or the... Delta, or, do you want them to like, kind of be gross just for a second, like to cough and blow snots on your face? You know, would you like that? Say, well, no, that's creepy. And then, and then someone says, well, COVID wasn't that bad. Oh, really? Well, then why don't you just ask somebody with COVID to, to cough on your face and we'll see how you feel. You know, and all of a sudden this little fear comes in like, oh, what if it's real? Now we're scared. Now we're a scared. I'm, p- I'm, I'm picking at an idea. We're afraid of things in our culture, right? In the first century culture, you don't touch lepers. 
You don't touch lepers. Period. That one disease somehow embodied sin. It embodied evil and corruption. And you don't touch lepers. Period. You just didn't do it. Okay? And yet Jesus does. So the leopard com- leper comes and he said, have mercy, have mercy. And Jesus, uh, have mercy and heal me. And Jesus heals him, touches him. <gasps> Major social distancing violation. Touches him. He's healed. And if you remember the story, um, there's ten lepers. Who comes back to give thanks? Who is that one? A Samaritan. So here's this, here's this, there's a parading of people that interact with Jesus and how they react to him is, is, is recorded so that you and I will learn how to react to him. And are we grateful when we're forgiven or are we just, you know, skip on by and do something that's more important? Do we stop and say thanks? Do we believe? You get the idea. Um, so when Paul says the love of Christ controls us, Paul is saying, patch your on it, I'm going to treat people, I'm going to interact with people the way Jesus did. Does that mean you know how to throw the punch? Absolutely. Did he do it with the Pharisees? Absolutely. Jesus was not this sweet, kind, religious pansy that didn't have a brain or a spine to know how to confront people when it was the appropriate thing to do. But the people who were broken, the people who were uh, uh, already humiliated and already shamed, he was there to touch them, heal them, understand them, and never, never treat them disrespectfully. So, the love of Christ control. Can you imagine being best friends with somebody with a clear conscience that's going to love you the way Jesus loved you? Now, how's that for an amazing relationship? The love of Christ controlling you, a clear conscience. Wow, those relationships are going to be absolutely beautiful. So, all right, you're the body of Christ. These ideas are designed to get you thinking. I want to turn this over to you. We're going to do a great big counseling session on how we are to be encouraged and to walk out faith so that we are like Christ and his love controls us. Stephen, question from online. Uh, in response to the question, how do we let uh, God's love control us? Uh, Lisa Anderson says, we hopefully act differently and speak differently from how the world responds because we know Christ and the love he has for us and others. Yes. And then Kathy Fuller has a question. What is the difference between loving each other and people pleasing? Yeah, um, a tough one. Uh, Kathy, great question. Lisa, thank you, by the way. You, you got it. Uh, so, Kathy, the difference is essentially this. When you're a people pleaser, <clears throat> watch. I'll use a simple gesture with, with the Bible. When you're a people pleaser, we're going to put this thing away. Because it's offensive. And we don't want, we don't want to put anybody out. We don't want to make anybody feel bad. We don't want to confront them with truth. You know, you're just, uh, you're a humanist. Your truth is your truth. You do you, <laughs> you know. And, and, and where, where, where truth becomes absurd and all of life is just philosophical mush and you pick and choose what you want. 
that you will do anything to not offend anyone and you will do most everything to not bring this up because it's offensive, it, it divides. But when you begin to please God, uh, the opposite happens. You're not afraid to bring this up. You're not afraid to tell the story of Jesus, which has become your story. Yeah. So when you're a people pleaser, you put God to the margin. You don't want him embarrassing you in public. Um, uh, but when you're a God pleaser, you, uh, you do the opposite. You're not afraid or ashamed to talk of Jesus. First, or, or Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul made it very clear. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the very power of God for salvation. To my all who believe. Yep, absolutely. Margaret. I recently heard this <clears throat> definition of love. I wanted to see what you thought about okay. it. Um, but it said, uh, love as the will to extend oneself for the purpose of nurturing one's own or another's spiritual growth. Yeah, that is so good. Yeah. Love pours into, huh? Love pours into and seeks benefits. So, all right, you're the body of Christ. How are we going to live this out? You know, we're in Corinth. We, we've been beaten up. It's been a tough, several, tough decade. And Paul's there, and wow, massive cleanup operation that took a long time. And we're back up on the rails as a church, and we're doing the Lord's Supper like we're supposed to. And we've, there's, there's healthy levels of accountability. It's great. And things are going well at, at Corinth, the church in Corinth. And then Paul knows we're getting a little tired, we're a little weary, and so he sends the second letter, and he includes this in chapter 5. And it goes on, it's amazing what he does. What does this matter? How do we live it out, Janice? I have a question. Yes. Um, it talks about compensation for our good deeds and our bad deeds. Yep. Now, we're forgiven our sins, so I don't understand. That seems conflicting to me. I knew someone's going to ask that. Anybody want to answer that one? Let's go ahead and read through the end of the chapter and look at verse 21 where the point is driven home that those in Christ are clothed with the righteousness of Jesus himself. Yeah. Those outside Christ will answer for them. In Christ, you, you walk around with Jesus' righteousness on you. Like a garment. Like you, a garment. You're covered in yeah. Yeah. You know, we, we, we have to buy in wholesale of that, but that's what we got. It's not just in any, in any shape or form. It's not fair in the sense of fairness, but it's, it's what we can do. Yeah, that's good, Joe. Thank you. Then what do you do? And I know what Joe's saying, and he's, he's on it, but there's more. There's more, Janice. What do you do with the story about the talents? When Jesus says, hey, I gave you one talent. Show me the fruit of your, what you, your actions with that. Or I gave you two talents or five talents. And what is, what is the closing statement that Jesus gives? Enter into your reward. Good and faithful servant. What I gave to you, you were responsible for that. Enter into your reward. What about 1 Corinthians? 1 Corinthians 3, where Paul says that our works are going to be tested by fire. And the works that are wood, hand, stubble, what happens to them? The gold, the jewels, are the good works. That's the, that's the imagery. What happens to it? It passes the test. Yeah. Yeah. There's tension here, Janice. And there should be. There should be tension. The idea, can, can you imagine the idea that we who are in Christ, right? 
can do anything and get away with it. Because we're in Christ and it's so good to be magically protected. I'm being silly to make my point. You get the idea. There is accountability. There is a day of judgment coming. And everything we've done in the flesh, whether good or bad, will be judged and there will be a compensation. Is it going to be crowns? Diamonds, rubies, stars in the crowns? There's imagery like if you, for those who have kids, hopefully I'm not the only one who's done this because I'm not the. <laughs> but if you ever, you want your kids to do something very specific, you want them to act a very specific way. And so you say, first one to clean the room gets this, right? But if you don't clean your room, you, you know, this other thing happens, you're going to get in trouble. Well, the goal is to get them to clean the room, and you're really going to give them all the chances and the, the motivation to go clean the room. You're not expecting them to not clean it, so therefore you can punish them. But the idea is that you're shaping them so that they will clean the room, and that's the expectation, to do that good task. Yeah. And so you have patience with them. You should have patience with your children. To do that. The goal isn't to punish them, but the goal is to be able to reward them and to uh, develop them so they can see that. So at first, yeah, their motivation may be to get that reward. But in that whole process, that's what they see. The whole process, you are shaping them to, to see beyond that eventually. You're shaping them. And I believe that's what God does with us. Yeah. He, he tells us these things intentionally. So that way, we know that there might be a consequence or something there. But that that's not the goal. That's not the purpose. The purpose is that we do grow in our faith. Um, so that, that's so good, Stephen. That really is good. So... Question, parents, uh, what is the ideal or the highest form of obedience from a child? Is it they clean the room because they're going to get the, the raisin treat or the popsicle? Or if you're not Christians, you give them Cheetos, you know, something like that. Um, thank you for laughing. You give them the prize. Or they clean the room because it's just the right thing to do. That's all. There's no need for a treat. There's no need for applause. Yay, look at what little Billy did. He cleaned his room. Yay. You, you clean your room because it's the right thing to do. Because that's what it means to be a responsible adult. That's going to be a high form of obedience. And so Paul says, by the way, in, in the text, hey, we're just, our ambition is to please him. I'm going to do the right thing because it's the right thing to do, not to earn some new treat or a box of you know, heavenly Twinkies or something because I, I did the right thing. So, David? It's, it's also how you live your life. What is it that you enjoy more than knowing about Christ or having Christ in your life. Yeah. If that's overshadowing it, yeah. then you're not pleasing God. Yeah, yeah. And, and that actually gets down to it, David. You've got two, two ways of doing life. We're going to have, the, as our ambition, please ourselves and please other people, be people pleasers, or please Him only and be a God pleaser. Absolutely. And love people like Jesus. Love people. So... Or more compensation, but we don't know right. what it is. Um, but our sins have been forgiven, yes. so we will still be with him in yes. heaven. We yes. just might not have anything. Yes, this is not the basis for Catholic purgatory. Okay, we've got a problem here. You're going to go to purgatory, and we're going to we're going to let you cook for a while. We're going to burn the sin out of you, the the bad stuff, and then if you clean up, we'll let you go to the big house. Ed. But one of the beautiful pictures, I think, in this too, this was painted clear in a drama part years ago on this topic. Um, 
you've got a couple things to consider there. Um, and you alluded to it a minute ago. It's all going to be tested by fire. So the compensation for the worthless deeds is fire. But when it's done, it's gone. Consider that part. Yeah. And then you're left with the crowns and jewels. Yeah. But what does the scripture also tell us about what happens with that? Yes. We take it and lay it down at Christ's feet because yeah. that's as again, as a pleasing and honoring of yeah. because it's only by him that we did those things in the first place. Yeah. That's so good, Ed. Uh, have any of you read the new book that's out by the, the two dudes that started Babylon B? It's called The Postmodern Pilgrim's Progress. Gotta read it. Gotta read it. it it's a quick read. You blow right through it. It is so good uh, about the postmodern church. It's really interesting. It's about a guy. I'm not going to give anything away. It's about a guy named Ryan who goes to church. And guess what the name of the church is? Ignite Church Collective. They've got smoke machines, <laughs> fog machines. They've got lights in sync with the drums, you know. It is done in full, it's like full Babylon B. It's so good. I encourage you to read it. You blow through it quickly. But, and when you put it down, you're going to go, ooh, wow, that cuts like a knife. That's sharp. It is, it is that good. So, yeah, Ed, you nailed it. Larry Cranston, anyway. So, Janice, I think I would, do, I would make a mistake. Please appreciate me. <laughs> Letting you off easy. I would make a mistake. It's not what Paul means. There's tension. There is a test coming. <laughs> it's real. And we need to take this thing seriously. Alan? What's that? Postmodern Pilgrim's Progress. What happened to Alan about, what, 150 years ago? When did, when did John Bunyan write that? The original Pilgrim's Progress. It's like a Shakespearean masterpiece. It's a big, big deal. Uh, these guys who are satirists, they're brilliant dudes that know how to spin it in a way that's satirical and yet cuts like a knife. They started Babylon B. They rewrote it in modern language, postmodern language. So it's really, really good. Really, really good. So, All right. Um, anybody else on this? Persuaders, how good are you at persuading people for the stuff of Christ? Chris, I think another important thing, I always pay attention when the Holy Spirit's mentioned in Scripture. Yes, yes. I think a lot of people get the concept of the Father and the Son, but the Spirit, it has key moments, but it's also just as important. And it's, um, but anyway, it's mentioned here, and it's, uh, in my version, it says, God gives the Spirit as a down payment. Yes. And it's, your life is not. God's already invested so much into your life before you even get to know Him. Like, He's yeah. given you the Spirit to work in you. And I think I've grown the most in my faith when I've surrendered control over to the Spirit. Yeah. To let it guide me in what to do and say. And, yes. Um, you're not doing the suffering alone. That is so good, Philip. All right. Anybody in banking and find it? Actually, uh, Kayla, your, your husband, Ben. Um, he's in banking. So what's the, what's the function of earnest money or a pledge or a down payment? What's the function of that? What's that? 
Sorry. Commitment. It's a commitment. There's more. It secures your, your spot or your uh, intent. Secures your intent, secures the spot, right? So, Stephen, when you bought the property in, in Scott, Arkansas, did you have to put down a, a down payment or earnest money? <laughs> okay. Can I just tell you there's some issues with Stephen? You ready? Number one, that is the most horse trading guy I've ever met in my life. Number one. Number two, he's, did you guys ever see Monsters, Inc.? Okay. I'm the little kid in bed. Stephen busts in the door and screams and tries to capture it to make you know, fear energy kind of thing. He knows I'm in the bathroom because the fan's on and it's loud. And so he goes, he's in there. And he waits. The other day, you know what I did? I went full Jason Bourne. I come out of the bathroom. <laughs> and I'm looking. Guess what? He wasn't even there. <laughs> He's in my head, people. He's in my head. <laughs> he is a little buddy. <laughs> oh, man. Yep. Yeah, um, I was chatting with Belinda, I think yesterday, and you know she's thinking about a new car, and so let's say she finds one and it's a great new car and you know all the bells and whistles and all that, and, and since I guess you guys know that there's not a whole lot of new cars available in the market, and so I said to Belinda, you may have to put five grand down on that thing to guarantee that that's your car. And that, that Bale Chevrolet, whoever it is, can't sell it out from under you, promise you the car, but then sell it to somebody else. That's illegal. They can't do that if she makes a deposit that secures it. Do you understand? So Philip's onto something. If the Holy Spirit is God's down payment in purchasing you, then what should your relationship to the Spirit be? What a comfort. Can you imagine the Holy Spirit as a down payment, as earnest money, as a pledge, as a security deposit that guarantees your mansion, Janice, <laughs> in heaven? Wow. Take comfort from that. Take comfort. Anybody else? Okay, if I could ask you as your pastor, and what a gift to get to even say that, I would ask you to do two things. I'm going to pull two things out of this list. I'm going to say this. Would you please consciously make an effort to make it your ambition to please God? Just start with that. Make it your ambition to please the Lord. And secondly... Would you consider trying to love people the way Christ loved you? Those two things will change everything in our lives. If you do just those two things. When you wake up in the morning, it's, it's Abba, Father, I am. The passion of my heart today is to please you. Help me to do that. And then help me to love people as your son has loved me. The guy on stage that you're looking at, I'm the leper. I'm the woman bleeding for 18 years. I'm the blind man. 
I'm the crippled dude on the mat that's too afraid to get off the mat because I've been sick for 38 years. I'm all those people. I'm the woman at the well. I'm the woman caught in adultery. I'm all of those people. I'm the liar, the tax collector, the thief, the cheat. I'm all those people, all wrapped up into me. And how did he treat me? Do you understand that following Jesus costs everything? Do you understand that? And by the way, do you also understand that we need each other as church? Do you understand that we need each other? You know, I know we have people online, and I'm so grateful that we're online, uh, and that that's a resource for, for folk. But you know what? Have you ever seen? You know, you can log on to a website, and and it's like a digital fireplace. Have you seen that? And you get the little dancing flames, and you hear the crackle. And you and your spouse are sitting there looking at the computer monitor. (laughs) When it's really cold this winter, I've got a test for you. Try logging on and looking at your little digital fireplace. Logging on. See, I'm more punny than people realize in all of that. And I know how to do with Stephen from this point on. So... And then I want you to come to my house and my Buck 92 wood stove is going to be humming at about 1,500 degrees. The blower is going to be on. I'm going to hand you some hot coffee and we're going to talk. And we'll compare that against your little digital. Yeah. There's nothing like what we're doing right here, right now. And we need each other. And that's what Paul said to the church. The church is... Uh, addressed, not Paul, uh, the church is addressed in Hebrews. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Don't settle for the... We need each other. Okay. I want to pray and bless. Uh, Father, thank you for each person that's here. Uh, pray that their heart has been challenged, the spirit you've brought, you, you've encouraged them because you're the pledge, you're the promise that God, you will not leave us or forsake us. God, I pray that for all of us, and especially me, that I will have as my ambition, we will have as our ambition to please you, the Lord, and that we will do so with a happy heart because it's the right thing to do. I pray that we would see people, value people, and love them as you have loved us, please. Thank you for this grace. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen.